Welcome to On The Metal, Tales from the Hardware Software Interface. I'm Brian Cantrell. With me, as always, is Jess Frizzell. Hey, Jess. Hey, Brian. <laughs> All right. So we are, uh, we've got a very exciting guest here in the garage today. Do you want to introduce our guest, Jess? Yeah. So we have Tom Lyon. And I think that what we should start with probably is what he brought us. Yeah. He, Tom, you brought us a gift. First of all, welcome to the garage. Thank you. Great to be here. <laughs> uh, it, and not that this, is, this should be the expectation for everyone coming into the garage, but that said... We do honor the fact that you have brought us a terrific gift. So do you want to describe what you, what you brought us? Well, I'm a collector of computing artifacts, mostly manuals, but every now and then something, something else, but not, not huge amounts of hardware like some people. Um, <laughs> but the, I got a bag full of buttons and indicators from IBM 360. So what I have for each of you is a ready light from the IBM mainframe. It is. It's so cool. It's so cool. And it's we, also our color green. It, it is. It's. It is the the green that we have for oxide, which is great. It also has got such heft to it. And you had an interesting little anecdote about about the the origin of Ready. Yeah. So apparently in the fifties, sometime somebody was going to have an idle light on the mainframe, but an executive at IBM came along and said, "Oh no, our machines are never idle. Let's call it Ready." That's genius. I mean, you yeah. really have to admire that. That yeah, is yeah. really, there is something. And why do we not call it that? We should call it the ready loop, not the idle loop. I mean, it really is. It's, <laughs> it's unfortunate that idle kind of reinserted itself into our right, lexicon. Right. Because ready is really a much better term. My teenager is not idle. He is merely ready. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, in my case, he's idle. I'm ready for work often. Yes, exactly. That's no, good. It's good, but thank you so much for this. And so when did you, I mean, it's interesting that you've been collecting this kind of, and you've got a, a terrific artifact at, in your offices at DriveScale, an actual platter from a from a spindle. You want to describe that one a little bit? That's an amazing artifact. Yeah, actually, I have two giant platters, one a 26-inch and one a 31-inch. They're both from 1961, I think. Whoa. Wow. And uh, hefty, hefty disks that, that were, you know, mag, you know, magnetic disk. And the units that they went into were these gigantic things because uh, they had a lot of these discs lined up together. And, um, and it, I've actually been trying to collect one of every size of platter ever ever made. Wow, that's cool. <laughs> that and, is awesome. Uh, the tiniest is a 0.85 inch okay. that uh, Toshiba made with a USB interface. And that was killed off that was very recent as well, but killed off by flash memory. Right, so your criteria is this needs to be rotating media. This has right, to be a spinning right. platter. Yeah, just for fun. Because 0.85 inches on a platter, that's That's amazing. really small. Because, yeah. yeah. you know, you could collect flash, but it's just chips. Oh, yeah. Flat, no, no, right. no. This is a much better hobby. Right. And then the largest ever made, and I think there were only two or three ever made, the 48-inch platter. Holy God. And uh, Stanford had one, and Lawrence Livermore had one. And the trouble was they were so huge that when they changed temperature... All the everything would get out of alignment. <laughs> totally, because there are too many types of metal. Well, you've got. I imagine you've got a lot of problems, and then also just the angular momentum you have. Right. I mean, scary, scary. Very like scary. you could actually like hurt somebody. I oh, imagine. Yeah. What was the speed of of those platters? Do you know? Was it the kind of the? It must have been. They were like fifteen hundred RPM. Right. Okay. Yeah. Because I and remember, I can't remember. I came across it. Maybe it's apocryphal that if you get below about twelve hundred RPM you begin to lose, it becomes, the aerodynamics become really complicated. If you, if, uh, Yeah, I don't know, but 
What's interesting is that at some point they figured out making things smaller made everything more rigid and life was much simpler as they made things smaller. Oh, wow. Right. Wow. So the, and we talk about on the metal. I mean, that platter you've got, <laughs> it is metal. I mean, cause you just, you've not seen it, right? If you no, I saw it, the picture, saw the picture. Yeah, it is. It, I mean, how much does it weigh, Tom? I mean, it's got to weigh uh, 15 pounds. maybe. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. I mean, this, That's hefty. it is absolutely hefty. And that came out of, was it a Libroscope? Or what was the machine that, no, that Lib- came out of? Libroscope were the guys who had the 48-inch They were monster. the, oh, oh, wow. This came out of a Burroughs and a Data Products. Oh, cool. That did stuff for lots of vendors. Wow. And this is a machine that predates you, I assume. I mean, this oh, is yeah, not a machine yeah. that you ever had, saw or no, worked I, on. I had no personal connection with that. Right. But just a, a curiosity. Yeah. Well, I, I love that when I was a young technologist, I developed that same interest in the history that had come before me. And you obviously had the same thing of, yeah, yeah. boy, what, what did come before me here? Well, the other really cool thing I got not too long ago was a uh, memory tube, memory scope from an IBM 704. Okay. And that was IBM's first commercial computer. Right. And the, mem- and the memory was on CRTs, right? So you had a 32 by 32 bit pattern on a CRT was, wow. was 1K of memory. So I got one of those CRTs, and the the computer had, I forget whether it was thirty six bit or or forty bit wide words, and they had one bank of CRTs with the detectors on the front, so you could read back the bits and refresh. So, and then how it, did the memory work? Is it using photoreceptors? It's is using the the phosphorescent phosphorescence to store <laughs> the bit, and then you would read it back and refresh it every so often to keep it keep it going. Oh my not, gosh. Which is not that different than DRAM. No, I mean, it isn't, right? It's like, why should that seem so insane when right. we do basically right. the same thing with capacitance that they're doing the phosphorescence? Right. But, but but the cool thing was they had one one bank of things, which was the memory, and another bank of CRTs with the same display on it that you could look at and see what was going on. Wow, that is really interesting. And how, I mean, how effective was that uh, memory? Was that, I mean, was it- It was great. Lossy? It was good. It was good. And it was very fast. Right. Um, density, I imagine. Yeah, density sucked. Density right? sucked, right. But until core memory came along, that, that was the, the hot thing. So this is pre-core memory. That's crazy. And where, and this is like maybe post-Mercury delay lines- Right. Right. Which has got to be some of the earliest right. the, in terms of memory. Yeah. Univac one was Mercury. And that was just a couple of years before this. I assume if you come across a Mercury delay line, you're not going to purchase that. That, that, that feels a little, no, yeah, no. exactly. That feels or, a little too dangerous. And probably they're not going to be allowed to put it on eBay. <laughs> yeah. That terrible. one seems like a, so do you know how a Mercury delay line works? No. Justin, do you want to explain a Mercury delay line, Tom? Well, basically it's a long, narrow vat of Mercury. And by disturbing it at one end, you create a wave, oh, wow. which, which represents a bit, and you sense it at the other end. So now you store the bit for the the amount of time it takes to go from one end to the other. Well, okay, so like thermometers are mer- mercury, right. like thermometers traditionally. Are mercury. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, I assume it's the the mercury. It was the viscosity. I would assume of the. I mean, it's obviously properties of mercury that make it particularly amenable. I mean, presumably yeah. you could make a delay line out of other liquids. It would just be much more lossy and or complicated. Yeah, I don't know all, all the physics behind it, but of course it was a big pain in the butt to install and get, get <laughs> yeah. it stable and perfectly level and all this kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, that's crazy. That's super volatile. Well, it is volatile in both sense, right? It's obviously, yeah. it's volatile memory, but then it's volatile <laughs> from a, I, I mean, do not drink the memory for certain. Oh God. Right. Do, not, do not touch the memory. Yeah, so yeah. speaking of volatile memory, you know, I 
for, for your listeners, I was employee number eight at Sun, right? And the Sun One had software-based memory refresh. Huh. So you had to take an interrupt every two milliseconds or something and walk through a certain amount of memory or your memory would go away. So software in interest, like it was the host operating system that was responsible for that. There's not right, some microcontroller right. elsewhere. It was actually- Or, or like, even worse, even when you're booting, you had to get in there very early on and put in an interrupt service for the timer. Oh my gosh, I did not know that. Every two yeah. milliseconds. Wow. That's and a- of course, what this made it really hard to do was to put in a breakpoint to debug anything. <laughs> <laughs> you stop the machine and like, and there's no more machine. Right. Oh my gosh. And so that, that was a feature quickly, <laughs> quickly obsoleted by the sun too. I can imagine. Wow. I did not know that. What a great, was that common at the time to have software refreshed memory? No, this was an Andy Bechtelsheim special. It was like, <laughs> nice. You know, why, why should you have another piece of hardware that increments addresses, blah, 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 when the processor can do that? Right. And you're like, uh, Andy, is that an earnest question? Because I would like to explain why you would want to have another piece of hardware refresh memory, actually. Why we do not want to have those offered. Uh, wow. Yeah, the the kind of uh, Andy Bechtelsheim B-sides. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty great. I mean, it's on the one hand, I admire it. I mean, it's classic Andy. I mean, it's very bold. Right, right. He was good at saving on hardware, which, <laughs> which uh, paid off well. Wow. In those days, in the, in the sun one day, so you, you're employee number eight. And you and I didn't overlap at Sun, but you were a folk hero at Sun, obviously, by the time I, I showed up. I was, and I, I always wish we'd overlapped actually at Sun. But in those days, I mean, you were one of the first software engineers, right? I mean, you were. Right. I was, I guess, the third actual software engineer. Wow. Oh, cool. But the only one who had really solid Unix experience. Yeah, point. I feel like at some point you tweeted out a photo of like a napkin that you had at the time, where you just laid out all of all of the next like twenty years of computing on a napkin. It, it, well, the, no, there was a a page I have. Which oh, your is, notebook, maybe. Yeah, a notebook from the original NFS architecture offsite. Wow. All right, and so at the end of it all, we had the the drawing on the whiteboard, and I copied it all down to my yeah. notebook. And that is the architecture, which is pretty much remains today. It's an amazing, because it feels modern, and yet it's from 1984? 80, 84, I was, well, 83, maybe. 83. NFS didn't ship till 85. Wow. So it was probably 83. I mean, the idea of getting your storage over a network was obviously radical at the time. I mean, this is the first real instance of network storage. Well, I've been doing some research into that. And uh, the notion of a file server was there in the Xerox Alto world. Right. And apparently also there in the data point stuff. Okay. Which I just finished reading a book about data point. Oh, yeah. What, what, what book would you And uh, of course, can't remember the title. Right. But it, but it has, <laughs> no worries. We'll get in the show notes. No worries. But it has data point in it. And they have a strong claim to having invented the microprocessor. Huh. Where they work directly with Intel on the 8008 uh, they have a strong claim to inventing the personal computer because they were building programmable desktop devices. This is pre-Alto then? Yeah, this is around 1969. Wow. And they definitely invented the local area network. Huh. Whoa. Which is ArcNet, which still yes, right. they, survives in yeah, strange right. ways. ArcNet, so DataPoint invented ArcNet. I did not realize that. Yeah. Boy, I'm, it's a... Go read the book. That sounds that sounds fascinating. So I mean, they they were like king of king of the business world in the early early eighties, and then they huh. had had weird management takeovers and blew up in the mid eighties. Wow. Well, yeah, many the many a fate for yeah. many a computer company. So ArcNet was invented there. 
Um, and ARCnet was a bit of a goofy network. I worked at I worked at a, an operating systems company, Qnix, that grew up on ARCnet, strangely enough, um, wow. and supported ARCnet much later than anyone else, I think. It was, I, except, it was basically a token ring. That's right, it's a token thing, ring, right, yeah. yeah. Which, with, with its concomitant problems, I think. Right, right. But it couldn't have been worse than Apple Talk, though. Oh, interesting. <laughs> so what, you know, I never had to use Apple Talk. Yeah. Apple Talk, not fun? It was amazing what they were able to do with it, considering it was just a serial port gone crazy. Um, it's actually uh, the same chip that Sun used, the Z8530 UART, right. was used on the Macintosh. But because they didn't have to worry about things like multitasking, they could, they could spin loop and drive the thing at 200 kilobits. And that was the, the basis of local talk. And then they layered on CSMA type stuff on just in software. With the assumption that you were doing nothing else but driving this UART, basically. Right, right. And so at Sun, I did all kinds of horrible magical tricks with UARTs as well. And eventually we had a DMA-based board with that same chip where I, I wrote an Apple Talk implementation. We, there was an Apple Talk implementation for Sun machines? Never, never shipped as a product. Wow. Because, because the higher level protocols were even stranger and hard to implement. The high-level protocols on top of Apple Talk. Yeah. So, what was the even the rationale for even experimenting with it? What, what were Apple Talk devices? What what devices spoke over Apple Talk? Well, the most notable, of course, is the Mac. But the second most notable was the LaserWriter. Right. Okay, that's what I was right. wondering. And which it, was Sun actually OEM'd that from Apple. From Apple, yeah. But we had to talk to it on a slow serial port. Interesting. And at a time when the laser printer is not ubiquitous. I mean, it's, it, it's, yeah, it's yeah. a very differentiated technology, I remember. You know, it came from Adobe. They they implemented PostScript and all that. Right. And their development system was Sun Workstation doing direct DMA to the print engine. Wow. Right? Whereas when they ship it, it's a whole separate little system, 68,000, that, that did all the work. So it was always offensive to me that we were paying Apple, Apple for processing inside this thing. <laughs> right. So was the, the work on getting Apple Talk a way to get Sun to talk directly to the, the, the laser writer, presumably? Well, it was mostly me screwing around. <laughs> and learning but, that Apple Talk was not yeah. a puzzle protocol to deal with. Yeah. yeah what, what people forget, though, about the 80s is TCP IP was not a foregone conclusion at all. Right. There was IBM SNA, DEC, DECnet, OSI protocols, X.25. And I started this group in Sun, the Sunlink group, which eventually shipped like 17 different products, different protocols, all of which are thankfully dead today, Because right? <laughs> TCP IP was clearly the way to go, but they're so important to get into a customer site to connect to whatever they already had. So what made it clear that TCP was the way to go? In the early days, it was just the architecturally superior. You know, you could do a lot more with it. It was happy on Ethernet. It was happy in the wide area. And that was that was unusual. Actually, I remember people saying, TCP IP will never succeed on a LAN because it's a wide area protocol. Oh, interesting. And a few few years later, people were saying, TCP will never <laughs> survive in the WAN because it's, it's a LAN protocol. Part, right, exactly. <laughs> well, you might both be wrong. Um, yeah. That is interesting. And this is also, I, I think it's... It, it, for those of us who kind of came up later, it's hard to remember or hard to realize that TCP as we know it today really evolved. I mean, it was not all, it didn't all show up at once, right? Things like congestion avoidance. Yeah. Yeah. It took a while to sort out a lot of the details, but it's still, I think we'll interoperate with a off the shelf TCP from 
from Berkeley Unix. That's amazing. Yeah. And that interoperability was really an important strength, right, I assume. Right. And just and just like today, what was important was not the TCP standard. What was important was the fact that Berkeley Unix made it available to everybody. Interesting. Because nobody understood the standard, even, really? e- it, it, even, even to this day. Right? So it was the fact that it was effectively open source. Right. That was a big part of TCP success. Right. That's good. Well, I feel that's something that's also forgotten about NFS, that a big part of NFS's success when Sun was an open systems company was actually getting other competing vendors to have a correctly functioning implementation. Right. And, and that's, that's kind of a counterexample in some ways because it would have been easy, easy for us to say, here's the NFS code, just port it to your machine, you're done. Right. And that, that was the easy path if your machine was a lot like a Linux machine. Right. So we, we did license the source code. But there was a protocol spec. And that was actually a very important part of making the protocol work. One of the first independent implementations of NFS was for the IBM PC, which eventually became Sun PC NFS, but it was all assembler, I mean, and very tightly coded. Right. So that is not going to be using the source code from... No. no yeah, there was no. It, very much relying on the specification and then being able to... to but that, that emphasis the, on interoperability, I feel, was, yeah. was novel and at the time. Is that a fair yeah. statement? Yeah, it was fairly new because so many vendors just did proprietary protocols called it a day. Right. At the other end of the scale, people were putting putting NFS on mainframes where they had never seen a C compiler in their life. Wow. So, so NFS really became this kind of connective tissue for a lot of these different machines. Right, right. Yeah, it's interesting. And so... But, but yeah. I, I have to add that everyone who hates NFS today, you should hate NFS. It means you're using it, A, and B, it's it's thirty five years old. For Christ's sake, we <laughs> we can do something better now. You know, just we can yeah. I think there's you can, a you can ask me how later. But. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel with the NFS. On the one hand, I think that well, first of all, I think a lot of people that think they hate NFS, I'd love to know your opinion on this. They actually hate the Linux auto mounter, in that it is the the, the auto mounter was because the, the auto mounting is a really important part of NFS, right? It's this kind of like unseen component that's and it, it sun's auto mounter was terrible and had to be rewritten yeah, yeah and i've heard no end of horror stories from the, so i think if your auto mounter is bad you're going to blame nfs it's like well it's yeah so i i wrote the very first auto mounter and uh it was kind of a toy but it, then it got taken over and all of the generations that i've seen have just been full of all these crazy crazy features where it's clear no one ever quite figured out what they wanted to do with it, so they, it turned into yet another Turing complete language. Right, right. So the so was, did your automator? Maybe your automator was the one that worked. We should have uh, kept it simple. Yeah, yeah. And you know the current the in my automator the the interface out of the kernel to a user space was just NFS. Oh, interesting. Right. So it was very NFS centric. But now, of course, with Linux, there's all kinds of fuse interfaces and God knows what else. Oh yeah. Right. Yes. Right. And it, I also think it's just like it's, it, it, it's, it ends up being where the, the, the kind of the coalface of cap problems. I mean, if you have, I mean, many automatic problems stem from partitions in the network or transients in the network that are not properly dealt right. with that are actually very hard to deal with. Well, the, the, this gets back to people complaining that NFS is not POSIX compatible. And, you know, I like to point out, well, NFS predates POSIX, so what is POSIX's problem? <laughs> <laughs> the problem is that POSIX is not NFS compatible, right? right? And the real problem is POSIX says nothing about networks. 
Right. Right. So the cap theorem, which is pretty fundamental. Yeah. You have to address it or you don't actually have any any semantics on a network. And I felt that that cap was pretty liberating in that we were trying, I, I felt personally anyway, I was trying to engineer my way around cap for many years. Right, before, right. It, it, it was somewhat of a relief to realize, okay, wait a minute. Actually, this is at some level not a solvable problem. That I actually need to pick one of these. Right. And the, the other funny thing in the NFS world, originally we just had hard mounts, which was basically from a cap theorem perspective saying, that's the only way to get some consistency is to just right. hang if you can't get it. Right. We and, are going to be partition intolerant, effectively. And then later on, there were soft mounts that said, okay, we're going to go for availability instead of consistency. Right. Right. But of course, we didn't understand exactly what was going on back then. Right. That's what I mean, I think, that, that we were not thinking about it kind of at, at its more abstract level. And as a result, you didn't have a dial you could turn between like, hey, this is what, this is the behavior that I want. Right. I want consistency or I want availability. But so that napkin or that, I guess that notebook that was pretty amazing to think that in, you know, 1984, you ended up basically, that was the next, certainly the next 15 years of, of network storage. Yeah, uh, it had legs. I don't know if you know, there was a predecessor to NFS. Oh. Network disk. Okay. Did you ever hear about this? So no. It was a block-based protocol and it was implemented in the original diskless Sun workstations where you, you just couldn't even afford a disk for each workstation. And so it was a very simple read-write block protocol, which you know shared a disk on a server. Right. And people really hated that. And uh, it was very hard to administer because on the server, you didn't have a lot of spare space either, but you had to dedicate all these little slices to all your clients. And uh, so it was a mess. Right. But today we have Fiber Channel, we have iSCSI, and they clearly have an important role in the ecosystem, even though, you know, if you're a file bigot, you're a file bigot, and if you're a block bigot, you're a block bigot. But, but, but Sun went, went way out of the way to kill off ND when they did NFS. Right. Well, probably rightfully so, I think. I mean, I, I think NFS, I, I, all right, and maybe by your, uh, your nomenclature there, I'm revealing myself to be a file bigot, but there is something that's actually very helpful about having that higher level of abstraction. It just makes it much more understandable what's going on right. in these things. My, my, my new way of thinking about this is that files are for people. You can name them, you can move them around. It, it, it sort of all makes sense. Blocks are for machines, right? Because the kernel wants to do blocks. And then objects are fine for applications. Right. Right. It's just give me something. But you can't ever name them in any interesting way. Right, in terms of object storage. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, and I think that, I mean, I do think this is the, a great contribution of S3 is the is realizing that actually not everything needs file semantics, right. actually. Right. There, there are actually a lot of things out there that are objects that are not going to be mutable. Well, and to, and to scale to that level, they had to relax the consistency. And so that's, that's another strike against sort of the POSIX compatibility that people want. It's, it's really hard to do that in a in a very large system. Right. So going back to the, uh, the kind of the development of, of TCP, because you were right involved in that at, from the Sun perspective, one thing that I've heard about anecdotally, but trying to better understand, is the great internet collapse of 1986. Is that actually a thing? This is the, the congestion-based, the, the, there was no congestion control in the protocols, and the internet was at the point where it could no longer function. 
That was that was pretty much true. I don't remember the particular dates or anything. And, right. And Sun wasn't on the internet at that point because right? that was still very much an academic thing. But we had a lot of customers on on the internet. But Van Jacobson came along with the control theorem based, you know, exponential back off, all that good stuff. So he remains, you know, the hero of the of the internet. A hero of the internet, right? Yeah. Well, it really kind of saved the internet from itself, is yeah, my understanding, yeah. right? That it was actually it had gotten to the point that without, you know. We, congestion control, nobody likes, you know, the metering lights on the bridge because they're the ones that have to, you know, wait for it. But right. without the metering lights, we end up with actually an unusable uh, internet. Right. And uh, the alternative to all that was lossless networks, right? As epitomized by X.25 networks where you, you gave it a packet and it promised you it would deliver that packet come hell or high water, now that- you know, to the other end of the world. And... It worked, but it was really slow in lots of cases. And TCP was like, well, send this. We'll retransmit it if it doesn't get there. Interesting. That must have been a huge fight. It was. And and, and what's really interesting is Larry Roberts, who passed away not too long ago, he was a really key guy in getting the ARPANET started through. he, He worked at DARPA for a while, but I forget where all else. But then he went off and started the company that became Telenet, Okay. which was the biggest X.25 network provider. And he, okay. So he, he, he was responsible for starting the ARPANET, which all became TCP IP, but right. at the same time, his personal preference was lossless stuff. It was lossless stuff. He did all this X.25 stuff. And then later on, he did a bunch of router startups that could do lossless stuff. And he was always firmly convinced that was the way to go, even, even when the rest of the world left him behind. You can understand the appeal of it, though. There's an engineer's appeal to it that, yeah. like, no, you're going to give me the packet and I'm going to deliver the packet. Right. Like, don't worry. You higher-level software should not have to deal with having to retransmit or having this thing not show up. I will... It, but it doesn't... It, it's hard right. for it right. to work. But, but see, what, what, what they figured out at some point it was kind of the zen of reliability... The only way to trust a system to be reliable is to not trust it to be reliable and, and make sure it ha- happens yourself. So tandem computers figured this out very early on. The reason they had such high reliability is they forced application writers to not trust the hardware or the operating system. Huh. And so with Ethernet, it says, hey, it might get there, it might not, just don't trust me. So and you have to build protocols that work on top of that. It's kind of a deep thought. I don't know about yeah, Je- Jess. I'm going to need a moment on that one. That's that, crazy. The, 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 this is like a variant of the, the only way to win is not to play. Like the, the only right. way to actually get reliability is to understand the inherent unreliability in the substrate below. Right. You. And it forces it back on the application, yeah. which can then make intelligent trade offs about what it really needs to do or not. And then, this is invading my life again these days in, in the form of Ethernet fabrics versus PCI Express fabrics. Right. And, yeah, what do you make of all that? Well, PCI Express, it's, it's a bus, right? <laughs> right. And the thing about the bus is, is the operating system and the users and everything assumes that that bus is the heart of the system. It's always going to work or, or just nothing is going to work. Right. And so it's, you, you inherently expect it to be reliable. But now you take it out of the box on some cable that's liable to be tripped over and bad, bad things happen. Yeah, it feels to me like it's, why are we making the bus into a network? Since I do feel like the, the contract is very fundamentally different. Right, but making the network into a bus 
turns out, improves reliability in all kinds of interesting ways. Okay, interesting. Wait, could you expand and, on that? That's interesting. Uh, another example, we, we've worked a lot with SAS, you know, serial SCSI yeah. at DriveScale, which thankfully is not as central anymore. But it's another one of these, you know, reliability built in at the link layer kind of stuff. And we've seen situations where a dying disk will take out all the other disks on its SCSI controller because error recovery was so central to everything. And, and we don't want that to happen. We just want the disk to die and leave everything else alone. Oh, interesting. When, when you go down that slippery slope of promising reliability, you have to account for every possible error case that might ever happen, which is also impossible because you don't know. Whereas with best effort, it's like, well, it usually works. And when it doesn't work, you know, give us a call. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, so where does that, that land you then on, on these PCI-based fabrics, network fabrics? I mean, so the... I'm against them. Okay. I mean, they're... they're yeah, they're, yeah. So they're, I, I felt... Okay, good. I wanted to make sure that... But on the other hand, every... You know, there's about 100 AI accelerator startups right now. <laughs> right. Right. They're all building PCI Express-based chips. Right. And our whole thing at DriveScale is that we're trying to make server simpler and get stuff out of the server. Right. right. So PCI-based fabric is a way to do it, but it, it really doesn't go very far. Well, it just seems like, I mean, PCI obviously doesn't have to deal with partitions. PCI is able to be a cap denier. And yet the yeah. second you go over that, you, that you, as you say, you get a cable that someone can trip over. It's like, welcome to a partition. Yeah. And then you get into, well, can't I have two cables in case one goes out? Uh, and then mm, that, yeah. Bad. Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> then that's a whole different kind of network architecture. Right. right. And now you've got to deal with the things from this cables and everything else. Right. Um, I mean, that's really the, and that's the power of Ethernet, right? Is that you could just kind of plug it in and go. Yeah. And routing protocols, figure stuff out. Right. It's all kind of plug and play. Right? All right. We're going to take a quick break and then we will be back with more Tom Lyon on the metal. On the Metal is brought to you by the Oxide Computer Company. Wait, did you say computer company, Jess? Uh, yes, indeed. <laughs> but wait a minute. Everyone runs in the public cloud. Jeff Bezos uh, owns no. and operates every computer on the planet. Why would anyone start a computer company? That is so not true. I have spent a bunch of time talking to folks who are still running on-premises. And actually, like the consensus among all of them is just a feeling of neglect because everyone thinks that like everything is moving to the public cloud, but it's not. If you're still running on-premises, it's because you haven't heard of the cloud, right? No. There are really good reasons for running on premises still. For security, for latency, strategic reasons for your business. Wow, the people running on premises must feel like everyone has ignored them. They do, indeed. So if this is you, please head on over to our website, offside.computer, sign up for our mailing list, and we would love to get in touch and hear your stories. We acknowledge that you exist and you've got some really hard technical problems that we're solving. Oxide.computer, come join us. And we're back. All right. So, Tom, we left off. We were talking about Ethernet. Ethernet was effectively not only brand new, but one of several competing kind of, uh, of networking substrates right, back in the day, right. right? Actually, you know, everyone knows Ethernet by the more, more formal name, IEEE 802.3, right? And 802.1 is management protocols, which are still used. But there was an 802.2 and an 802.4 and an 802.5 and an 802.6, which I have personally implemented all of those. Oh, wow. 802.7 and beyond, I forget what all they were. Some of them were wireless, 802.11. Yeah, right. I mean, I, yeah, I feel like I only know 802.11. I don't know. The <laughs> 802.5 was IBM token ring. 
Yeah, I did not and, know that one. Yeah. And that 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 was a huge contender for a long time because right. IBM was pushing it. And uh I personally wrote token rank drivers. I have, I have a whole token rank story if you want to go there. I would. I, we, th- yeah, this is what we're here for. This is why we're here. Let's do the token rank story. Okay, so in 1989, you know, Sun is pretty hot. IBM shows up at Sun with their new 16 megabit token ring adapters for the PCAT bus. Okay. And they say, you know, we're announcing these in two weeks at the Comdex show. And, you know, if you guys want to be part of this somehow... Yeah, here's a couple of boards. In two weeks. Two weeks. Okay. Thanks for the, the advance notice. Now, at, at that time, Sun had not only the Sun 3 family with 68,000 based, but the Spark family had just been introduced. Right. Sun 4 based. And we had the Sun 386i, which was 386 and PCAT bus. So all we needed to do to show this off was to ride a driver. Right. So I did in two weeks and it worked great. Nice. So we, we get to the show, we're demoing TCP IP and NFS on token rings, six, oh, wow. 16 megabits between uh, Sun 3s, Sun 4s, and Sun 386i. And the Sun 4, one of my friends did a hardware hack where he, he hacked up a VME bus to PCAT bus adapter. So we had the Sun 4 on the token ring. Hacked up a VME bus to AT bus adapter in two weeks? Right. Okay. Those, I mean, those, how, were, those were the days. Those were the days. How did you hack that? How does one hack that up in two weeks? It was, I don't know. It was awesome. So anyway, so I'm at Comdex. I'm dressed to the nines because, you know, it's a trade show. I, I brought up my suit. So I'm in the booth. I'm explaining, you know, I'm, and, and somewhat sleep starved from having right, written a <laughs> right. driver for the past two weeks. I'm in the booth explaining all this to some guy, blah, 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 blah. And the guy's like, wow, this is really interesting. Is there anyone more technical I could talk to? <laughs> Wow. 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 Purely because of the suit. Right. That's crazy. Wow. And you're like, look, pal, I've been writing the driver for the last two weeks. I'm not sure there's anyone more technical on the planet in this domain right now. That is great. How did you take that? I was like, I, I was just stunned. It's like, oh, uh, <laughs> no, there isn't. Right. I said, like, wow, geez, God, I had to talk to some suit at the trade show. <laughs> That's great. And did the token ring, did, did that, sell? I mean, were people, I mean, I remember that those days when token ring was, I mean, it was obviously an IBM push standard. It's a big deal. Yeah. So, uh, we actually did a S bus token ring board Interesting, you're after right. that. And that was rel- relatively important in my next company, Ypsilon, where we did IP switching and ATM networking. We ended up doing token ring interface as well because there's just a lot of it out there. Right. Interesting. And there's certainly an appeal to it. You yeah. just you know do you know anything about token? We should probably explain token ring a little bit. Yeah, how it yeah so Tom, could you yeah you just give it a quick explanation of how token ring works? Well, it, it's best to understand relative to Ethernet. So Ethernet in its original days as a shared medium network, it was contention based. So people would transmit, and if you're lucky, nobody else would transmit at the same time. But if you detected somebody transmitting at the same time, then you would back off a random amount amount of time and try again. And people looked at that and said, that's complete it's chaos. crazy. Right, could that chaos, ever work? Right. Whereas token ring, it was very orderly. So it, it was a polling system and you passed a token around from node to node to node. And everybody took their turn and could, could add to the token with their message as it went, went around. And you would know, if I recall correctly, you would know when everybody on the ring has seen this message. When I have now received my own message, I know that everyone has seen right. my message. Right. So there's something to be, that's, 
Nice. Yeah. You know, I mean, what, you can always depend on people getting the message because they could be booting or something while that's happening. Right. But yeah, it was all very orderly. And there were uh, quite a few systems. We mentioned ArcNet before. IBM had theirs. There was Proteon, which very early on had a 70 megabit network that was token ring. And then there was FDDI, which was right. optical-based, 100 megabit, and that was all token, token ring-based. Right. But all different types of token rings. And so why did token ring not win? Uh, again, it's complex because token ring, it's all very orderly until somebody loses the token. It loses the token, right? This and, is always the kind of the knock on token ring is that it would, right. someone would spill the token on the floor. Right. And now... <laughs> I think Dilbert has a cartoon of that effect. Right. Yeah. And uh, then you get into the error recovery procedures, which were more complex than all of the Ethernet spec in the first place. Oh, oh geez. Right. right. And presumably not well tested. Right. Yeah. And very, very complicated. So you ended up having to have a lot of smarts on your controller instead of a dumb piece of hardware, that kind of stuff. Right. And then how, how open was Token Ring relative to Ethernet? Or were they... It, wasn't as open as early, but by the time they did the IEEE thing, it they was kind of figured out perfectly that, open. Right. TI had chipsets anyone could buy, that kind of stuff. Right. And I remember Fuddy, FDDI, I mean, was still around and still performing and competitive with Ethernet as late as, I mean, it, well, it yeah. was as late as like the 2000s, early 2000s. Yeah, certainly. All, all through the 90s at least. A lot of the internet exchanges were built on FDDI switches from digital... Stuff like that. Right. I also, so what happened to it? Why did it die? Or is it still around and I just don't know it? I mean, it's obviously still around somewhere, but it, I think Ethernet ultimately just just rolled it with the, with the economics. Yeah. I, I, there was a company, Crescendo Systems, that built a 100 megabit physical layer for Twisted Pair. Okay. So they're, they're the first ones to do 100 megabit at Twisted Pair. Right. And they developed it for FDDI. Huh. But then Cisco bought them and said, we can do Ethernet with this. Right. Right. And that, that was kind of the end of F FDDI. Right. Because okay. fiber is such a pain in the butt to deal with. In, I mean, so it's great yeah. until you actually step on it or, you know. <laughs> yeah. So, and certainly at that point, there was still, you know, data centers were nascent, right? So you had a lot of wiring, you know, through the physical infrastructure that was really hard to deal with fiber. Right. And you get presumably longer runs with fiber than um, with single mode, right? But mostly, it, mostly people were still doing multi mode. Multi mode, okay, interesting. And so, anyways, Ethernet takes over, and this, you left Sun. Actually, can we go back before Sun because a little bit? Because sure, I would love sure. to know what your first machine was when. Oh, how, yeah. how did you get into this? So my first machine. My dad worked for the local power utility, and my aunt was a professor at the university in El Paso. Oh, wow. One, one day, my dad came. He, he took a trip to IBM in San Jose because they were looking at buying a computer to help run all the operations, and he came home with a Fortran manual. That was the end of, end of life as I know it, and, and also for several of my brothers. So we're like, what the heck is this thing? And then it turns out my aunt could get us access to the brand new computer at the university, which was a CDC 3100. Oh, nice. A 24, it was a low end of the CDC range, but a 24-bit machine. Right. With one's complement arithmetic. <laughs> oh, wow. 
So there were two kinds of zeros, positive and negative. Right, right, yeah. An idea that died for a lot of good. Two's comp, but as it turns out, really is a better way to actually do things. Yeah, yeah. And so that was 1967 when I started. I was in sixth grade. And uh, really... Devouring it. So you had a Fortran manual, but no Fortran compiler up until you you got access via your AM, right? Right. So this is all theoretical Fortran. Well, it was just very interesting. And of course, everyone had heard of computers at that point. They were still mysterious things, but... Yeah, somehow I just got sucked into that. That's great. And then when you went to school, did you know you knew you wanted to go into engineering in some capacity? Yeah, I, I mean, I come from a very nerdy family again because my dad was an engineer and Renaissance man and could could fix anything and blah blah blah. And we were very competitive uh, academically among the seven boys and two girls. Oh wow! I did not know you had that many siblings. That's a lot. Yeah. yeah. I did not know. I mean, obviously, you've got siblings of note. So I know, I knew that I knew right. of the Lion brothers, but I had no idea that there were nine of you. Yes, we we're everywhere, and uh, two two of the siblings ended up non technical stuff. <laughs> Seven of the nine ended up pursuing technical. That's crazy. That that's is, also really cool. That's yeah. amazing. Yeah. Wow. And so even even now, I have a brother at Google. I call him the smart brother. He writes. He wrote a whole book on hearing, uh, machine and human hearing, and I literally cannot get through the first chapter. And a brother who's been at Microsoft for 25 years now. Oh, wow. Wow. It's just like distributed. It is, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That is amazing. And my brother Bob retired early from his legato startup Right. Uh, experience. Right. And so, I think Bob is the lion brother that I had heard of. I've heard Yeah, far, he, he was also at Sun. He was at Sun, right. He he actually managed the NFS group. Right, okay. Whereas I was just part of the NFS architecture crew. I didn't actually implement anything. Did you ever have to report to your brother? No, no. <laughs> Thank God, right? I, I was part of it. I didn't want to do that. So. Yeah, right. That would have weird, yeah. Yeah. It's like, why are you hitting yourself? It's like, God, I hate my one-on-ones with you. It's like, stop. <laughs> Wow, that is odd. Anyway, so through high school, I, you know, I, I got into every computer I could find in El Paso, and right. had a number of odd jobs doing programming and stuff. So it's the seventies. Computers are becoming more. I mean, high schools probably have computers at this point, right? Yeah, mine didn't. Mine had a programmable calculator. Right. Okay. Uh, but the the tech high school in the school system had an IBM eleven thirty. Okay. So I spent a lot of time on that. What was the programmable calculator? Do you remember? It was an Olivetti Programma 101. Nice. So it was it was pretty nice for a programmable calculator. I because I feel about yeah big right. So. Right, right. I because I I mean I feel some of the first programs I wrote were for a programmable calculator. Yeah, and I mean, Monroe was the other big name I think. Okay. I mean, I came up on, by the time it was HP for me, by the time okay. I was programming calculators, it was, I, the, 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 the Olivetti's I think were gone and they were not, you know, a yard by a yard. Mine that, was like way later. Right. Well, yeah, you, you're, you're TI-89. Uh, 83. 83. Okay. Please. Okay. I'm not that bad. Okay. All right. All right. Oh, you know, I just said I'm like no. offended. I'm so sorry. Yeah. But I, I, there is a certain like class of nerd that has that first calculator love. That's good to know. That, so Jess, I still have one. It's good to know that. All right, so Jess is not so young, but Jess, you should know there are people, the generation behind you, I don't think their first love is a calculator. Yeah, I know. It's, How it, could this be? It, it, it's tragic. I mean, the TI-89 is still very entrenched and it's galling when you get the high school course that mandates it. 
and, well, I think, uh, and they want like 120 bucks. They should ban that thing because honestly, you can do way too much with it. Oh, you can definitely do way too much. With you can it. just do straight up integrals. Oh. Yes. By plugging in the numbers. Like it, like it's cheating. It is cheating. And I had an HP 48, a 48G that I had used all of my summer money to buy that I actually took in a, a linear algebra course where the prof did not understand that the HP 48 could basically take the exam for me. <laughs> and it, he foolishly allowed us to use calculators on an exam. No, like that's why I said that they should be banned. Yeah. yeah. It, or show your well, work. I, I remember my... Uh, when I was in high school, it was probably 73, the HP 35 came out. Okay. Which was the first serious, seriously powerful, handheld, scientific. RPN, presumably. Yeah, RPN. That was awesome. My brother brought, brought one home from Caltech where he was going and had already mostly disassembled it, but it still worked. Oh, that is great. And so where were you in the birth order then? You're obviously not I was, the oldest. Yeah, six of nine. Six of nine. Wow. Wow, that is a, that's amazing. And and then what is the age spread between you and your oldest sibling? Between me, uh, my mom really pumped them out in the early years. So uh, <laughs> the first six of us are seven years. Oh wow! Wow. Yeah. Okay, so that was like just like one right after the other. Then, yeah. there, then there's after me. There's a three year gap. To, okay. To twins. You okay? Oh whoa! Boy and girl. Yeah. And then then there's a eight year gap. Okay, all right, there we go. Youngest. You got there's got to be one of those that uh because after twins, I feel like you're like okay, we gotta yeah. we gotta hold off for we a gotta, little bit. We gotta lay off. <laughs> we, uh, yeah, we gotta. So, so so the youngest one was clearly a surprise. Yeah, clearly, yeah exactly. And uh, my oldest brother had gone to college when he was born. Right. So that's a, that's a big spread. That is good. But wow, so you had six kids under the age of seven at some, at one point. That's yeah. really intense. Yeah. That is very, but and most of them apparently destined for tech. And my dad had like three jobs because he had the the power utility and he was repairing TVs and radios on the side and all this oh stuff. Oh my gosh. Oh wow. Teaching some. And... But there must have always been stuff around to play with. Obviously there was the Fortran manual, obviously oh, came yeah. home. The Fortran, <laughs> so you yeah. can imagine the Fortran manual coming home to this, this wolf pack. Of, of future <laughs> technologists well, I think just being devoured like like carrion. I sort of remember a sense of disappointment when I figured out that my dad wasn't going to just make a computer because <laughs> he can make everything else. Right, wow. Yeah, that was my impression. That he, he was going to make a computer. I do think, and this is where, and Jess, I know you are definitely not too young. That generation of really longing for a computer. Oh, yeah. Like I want to no, have a computer, like- but I can't have one. I saved for a long time for like uh, my own personal laptop. So, right. and then I used like some of my bot mitzvah money, which I wasn't supposed to do, but I did. <laughs> for a computer. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like that, I don't know, well, I think it's a bit lost, unfortunately. Yeah, it's funny. I, I completely missed the personal computer, the, the, the home built computer phase. Okay. Cause that postdates um, you effectively. You're, well, no, it, it's mostly. I was already so deep into computers. Right. Yeah, like, yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah, yeah. I, it's I like, had the real computers. Right, <laughs> right. Right. So I had my my day job at Amdahl working with made from mainframes. So um, Amdahl was was that your first job out of school? That was my first job out of school. Wow. Know, porting Unix to the mainframe. Oh, nice. And then there was Sun. So, you know, and, and one one of the things that set Sun apart was that the technical founders all were coming from bigger computers. So we knew that computers were actually supposed to stay up for more than an hour. Right. Right. Whereas there's a huge homegrown community building everything you can imagine in Silicon Valley. There were there were literally a hundred sixty eight thousand computer startups. There were a hundred and sixty eight thousand startups. Just like hundred AI chips today. Right. Crazy. There are a lot of AI chips. There are. 
so that is the, I mean, that's the Halt and Catch Fire era that right there. Is right. That's, that's dope. That's yeah. a great show, by it the way. It is a great show, That right? is yeah. one of my favorite shows. I watch it all the time. And, and one of the mind-blowing things is Carl Ledbetter, who's on our board at DriveScale. Yeah. Was technical advisor to that show. Oh, oh that's great. That's why it's so good. Like, there's a lot of little details in it where, like, you know that they have someone involved that's, like, right, super smart. Right. He did a great job on that. This is where, though, you, go, you do have to say that, so... Jess was a technical advisor to HBO's Silicon Valley, which yeah. is also pretty cool. Which oh. they also took super seriously because they don't want to be blown up on Reddit, which I could see why Halt and Catch Fire would be the same way. Because the second you get blown up on Reddit, like everyone, it's done. Right. Like yeah. You take your job very seriously. Yeah. No, yeah. it's scary. Uh, Silicon Valley is hilarious. I love that. <laughs> so I, and your job was to make sure that the Go compiled, right? That the Go well, that so it didn't technically have to compile, but I made it compile because I was like, if it flashes on screen for a second, it's like incompatible code. Like I will, I will be mad at myself more than like they would possibly be mad. But like, if it blows up on Reddit, then I'd super be mad at myself. Cause I'd be like, well, it needs to compile. Now, can I ask you a very personal question though? Yeah. Tabs or spaces? So Go has Go thumped, but like, so they do whatever, and I think it converts it to tabs. But but when I do bash scripting, I have been I have been forced into the tab life because of TNON. Oh, okay, yeah. Huh. So because I I mean, by the time you and I were working together, you were already hard tabs. So I you know I I had to switch my Vim settings because we couldn't both contribute to the Docker like little scripts in the repo because he'd always be like you're doing spaces again. And uh, and then I'd have to like go fix it. I was like, I'm just going to fix my editor. Just do hard tabs. Okay, so Tom, how old is that? Is is that debate? Hard, tab, hard tabs versus spaces? Um, Not that old from my perspective. Okay. Because there was a time when you used tabs because it saved a lot of space, you know, in, in storage. That was the actual and, rationale. And, and in communication, right? Okay. And, and, you know, the early Unix days, was, you know, like the 100, 110 baud TTY 33, huh. You don't, want to, you don't want to mess around sending spaces when you could send us a tab. I send a hard tab. Okay. Because, I mean, truthfully, I feel that my own bias towards hard tabs, certainly in shell scripts, just kind of comes up with the way I came up. And I came up in the source base that you were in. I came up in 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 Sun's Unix, effectively. Yeah, yeah. Where no, it was hard tabs. It was what I was accustomed to. Yeah. No, and, and if I'm doing C, it needs to be tabs and and then when I do Python, it's been beaten out of me. It needs to be spaces. Yeah, I, yeah. The, the, I, I feel the same way. The Python people are very actually intense about spaces. I, I kind of feel like the, the on white space, yeah, you're, you are, you thought you were listening to On the Metal. You're actually listening to On the White Space, our ultimate <laughs> podcast. <laughs> on the White Space, tales from hard tabs and soft tabs. Um, I, I feel that you just got to go with the prevailing culture in the community you're yeah. in. Yeah, right. And right. that it's very helpful to have Vim settings that say, okay, if this is a Rust file, if this is a Python file, if this is a C file, I'm going to change my my defaults. That's actually very helpful. I found. Yeah, it's gotten a lot easier with editors that can be programmed. Yeah, editors that can be programmed without actually consuming all of the resources on the machine. I assume right, you've right. got to be a VI guy, right? Yeah, I, I actually I'm an ED guy. Hey, oh, nice. old school. There we it's, go. It's in my muscle memory. <laughs> that and is awesome. I survive in VI because it's all buried in there somewhere. <laughs> That is awesome. I'm certainly one of the tribe. Are you, uh, do, do you've used ED? You've used. I, I've tried it, but but like that, like Vim is so ingrained in me that I can't use anything else. I'll tell you that the, the experience that for me really got Ed into the muscle memory was over a serial line. If you're over a serial line right, and right. you need to edit a file, like that There's will get, that will get the VI right out of you. You'll get you'll get very accustomed to and and ultimately the Emacs got out of me because I showed up to a job and I all I knew was Emacs. 
And I ended up spending the first two days trying to get the goddamn editor to compile as opposed to just using VI. Of course, I was also in a workplace that called it Vi. Right, right. Which is, I think that's a Canadian thing. It was very weird. I also came back from that job saying process and resources. It was really corrupting in a lot of ways. You know, it was, it was a problem (laughs) for someone who you give a lot of shit to for pronouncing things wrong. Like I, I like, I like him basking in this moment right now. No, You should, you, if, if you catch me saying Vi, you should jump all over it. That is not good. Like make it cringy. Yeah, no, it's, uh, yeah. (laughs) But so, so you, you used ED probably for actual like real editing back in the day. Oh yeah. And I started at Princeton. So, we got a Unix system when I was a freshman there, Unix uh, version six. Okay, sixth edition. And, yeah, yeah, and that was what you had for editing. And that was on, is that a 3B2 or is that too early for a 3B2? It was too early. This was a PDP 1145. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. And then uh, through an interesting series of events, I started trying to port Unix from that PDP 11 to the 370 at okay. Princeton. Oh, interesting. And, and that was a okay. What is the interesting series of events? Because that's got to be that's got to be very early for Unix on the mainframe. Yes, in fact, I think it's come out recently that that was the first Unix port ever attempted. Wow! As opposed to stuff like moving from the PDP seven to PDP eleven, which was a rewrite. Rewrite, yeah. And it wasn't the first to be successful, but it was the first to start. <laughs> um, Spoiler. <laughs> yeah. So, so uh, my freshman year, the Princeton Computer Center, where, where I worked for all four years, so I had arbitrary access to stuff. They operated a time-sharing APL 360 system oh, wow. for the state of New Jersey and all the colleges. And APL was incredibly cool system incredibly powerful and only understandable by people from ancient strange civilizations. Um, and this is APL, the programming language, yeah. right? I mean, so this is but, the... But APL 360 was an entire time-sharing system that ran in lieu of other operating system. Wow. And would run only APL programs or... Right, right. And APL is a first class. And so you, do you have the APL keyboard? Yeah, you had the 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 best thing to have was these IBM Selectric twenty seven forty ones with the APL font ball, and it was all built around this, this whole thing called Visual Fidelity, where if you if you overstruck an F with an L, capital F with capital L, it would look like a capital E, and in fact would be taken as a capital E by the, the system. Okay. Wow. Wow. I mean, it was full of weird, strange that things. That like is that. delightfully strange. Jess, have you ever looked at APL? No. Oh my it's, god! The, it, it, don't take this as a value judgment, but you would love it. Okay. It, it is super information dense, and it is. I mean, its origins are really in in math. I mean, it's. it's oh, so is that like K? K. Yeah, K. K is a successor of APL. Okay. Okay. K is an APL descendant. Because I liked K. But true. But it's crazy. It's crazy, but, but, but true it, APL. APL has its own character it's own, set. Its own character set. Right? How do you type that? Because this was pre- on a, Glad you asked. On an APL keyboard. On an APL Whoa. keyboard. Because this was pre-ASCII. There's no standards. That's crazy. So you have programs that are like three characters long that are meaningful. Right. And it's it's a very large character set as well. So Whoa. there's all these symbols, all the Greek letters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They all have- Okay, so it's like K, but on steroids. Right. Uh, I would say K is like APL trying to get like toned down. <laughs> okay, okay. So, all right. So it's so you're on APL 360. Yeah. Anyway, so that system, the state of New Jersey had decided to shut that down. 
And so Princeton was going to be left without a time-sharing system. And that, that was clearly not acceptable. So a bunch of us who had been using the Unix system said, well, the computer center should get a big PDP-1170, open up a time-sharing system for the whole campus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, the computer center's reaction was, what the heck is Unix? What the heck is a PDP? And oh, by the way, we just talked to IBM, they're going to give us another 370, because Princeton was a very high-profile site for IBM. Right, I can imagine, so, yeah. So we ended up with an IBM 370 running VM 370, where okay. virtual machines came from. Right. Which was another whole story. Um, so the Unix gang was disappointed. It was like, oh, grumble, grumble. But uh, you know, I, I said, well, wait, Unix is written in this C thing, right? And that mainframe has virtual machines. Why don't we just recompile it and put it over there? It's just software. Just software. And uh, so everyone had a good laugh about that. <laughs> Until, and, and that was like in the spring of 75. And then in August, while I was home, home from school, I got a call from Eric Schmidt. Now, Eric Schmidt was one of the Unix gang and, uh, advocating for stuff. So he had heard me say, why don't we just do this? But then it turns out he got a summer job at Bell Labs working with the Unix group, famously working on Lex. So, and he discovered that there was a 370C compiler at Bell Labs. So he said, well, that's clearly what we need to make this happen. So he calls me up and says, Tom, are you really interested in doing this? We can, we can arrange a project. I said, sure, what do I know? And just to be clear, this is the Eric Schmidt. The Eric Schmidt. Wow. Okay, so you got the C compiler now. So this is now possible. Right. And so we get the C compiler, then it's a mere matter of hacking away at things. And there, were, there was Eric Schmidt who kind of organized things and arranged for us to get credit for the work and all this good stuff. So was but, Eric, I, I mean, I knew Eric was at Sun, but I didn't know that he was at, so he was at Princeton. At Princeton, two years ahead of me. Two years ahead of you. Okay, yeah. wow. So he organized a lot of stuff. And then there were three of us who actually did technical work. And the other two guys were also two years ahead of me. So after one year, we had not got very far. And they, they all graduated. And then the second year, I managed to get to the point where I could demonstrate a, a shell and a kernel wow. on the mainframe. But it was very badly hobbled by the networking or lack thereof between the PDP-11 and the 370. Okay. Which... If I recall correctly, the PDP-11 had to talk to a PDP-8 on a unibus. The PDP-8 was attached to a serial line, which ran about 10 times further than any standard could ever support, <laughs> down to an IBM 360 Model 20, which was a satellite processor for the big 360 how f- in the computer center. Okay, so how far is that serial line running? That serial line was... I'm getting like hundreds of feet, it sounds three, like? I, about 300 feet. Okay, wow. So sometimes it works, sometimes it was, just, right, exactly. it was just line noise. Oh my God. And nobody really understood how or why. Right. I mean, it's a serial, with a serial line running the length of a football field. That's right. Yeah. And at that point, you know, I was, I, I was a pure digital guy. You know, I, oh, yeah. Software, don't talk analog to me. I have no idea what any of that means. So it was all a mystery to me as to why this would work or not work. Right. But anyway, anyway once, once you got to the 370 world, Everything had to be card images. So you'd have to submit your deck of cards to the mainframe, which could eventually route it to the time-sharing system, which then had a virtual machine where you could suck it in as pretend cards and, and try something. So it, it was like an hour to get it from point A to point so B. So you're doing your work on that PDP-11. Right. Going what, to the PDP-8, going 
over the over the football field length cereal line, right. dropping any number of bits along the carpet on the way right. Right. to the punch cards into the system, and then like doesn't compile. I presumably you would. Well, you, I, yeah. I mean, it, we we compiled on the right, right, exactly. on the PDP eleven, sure but, mistakes. but we had to do the testing, right, the hard way, right. So it, it was slow and painful. Yeah, that is a slow and painful dev loop for sure. But you, you got it even in that you got it working to the point where you could yeah. had a a shell. Yeah. So it got to the point where I could demonstrate that fork actually worked. And it's like hallelujah. Nice. That was it. Wow. And so did that experience help get you the, the job at Amdahl? Oh, yes. So there's a whole, whole series of serendipitous events here. So I wanted to work at Bell Labs for the summer. So I, I go through the normal interview processes. I end up interviewing with this, this guy who was doing something with Unix, but it wasn't the research group. And for whatever reason, he invites Ken Thompson down to impress me at lunch. Right, so Ken Thompson and I are having lunch with this guy, and I said I start talking about this work I've done porting Unix to the 370, and Ken is like, "Holy cow! You know, we're just about to start porting Unix to the interdata." Oh wow! All right, and Ken's, so mission accomplished on so, so uh, total, instead total, of Ken impressing you, you're impressing Ken. Right, so totally serendipitous. So Ken stole me for the rest of the day, <laughs> and I ended up working with with the Unix group for the summer. Oh wow! That's awesome. And that was the main work, converting V6 into the portable V7, which ended up everywhere. Oh, was, I mean, so you're working in the Unix group in the summer of like 75, 76? 77. Wow. That is, I mean... That's okay, cool. so now here's the other serendipitous thing. So Ken had spent a year at Berkeley, I think 75, 76, and made some friends. One of those friends, this guy named Danny Koch, ended up working at Amdahl. And then he was agitating, we need to get a decent time-sharing system in here. And at one point, I'm literally sitting in the Unix room with Ken Thompson. Ken gets a call from another guy at Amdahl. This guy at Amdahl is asking Ken, so we hear rumors there's like a, could be a port somewhere of Unix for a 370? And Ken, Ken says, Tom, it's for you. <laughs> wow. So I ended up working for them. That's amazing. So, all right, we got to take another quick break and then I got so many follow-up questions. So we'll take a quick break and we'll be right back with more Tom Lyon. On the Metal is brought to you by the Oxide Computer Company. Well, bad news. I just got back from a meeting with the attorneys. Oh boy. They are not going to let us say much in these ads. We can't talk about the customer experience today for on-premises infrastructure. So we can't do my idea to be like, are you being gaslit by your vendors? Because that's what they're doing. They're gaslighting people into thinking that these bugs only exist on one of their machines when it exists on like everyone's. God, no. They called that, I think, quote, a third rail. They must be following Jess on Twitter. I knew that that was a bad idea to let the lawyers follow Jess on Twitter. <laughs> Uh, they also said we can't talk about public cloud customer experience. Oh, come on. We can't talk about the rapacious bandwidth pricing? I mean, it's practically criminal. No, can't talk about the unit economics of that at Can all. we use the word criminal with respect to public cloud vendors? Definitely not. Oh, boy. What can we do? Well, they did say they gave us a statement we can use, which is... Are you going to read from it? Oxide Computer Company is building something that should help some people. 
Well, that seems very direct. Come on. Can we at least send them over to Oxide.Computer? We can. We can. The other bit of bad news is all the lawyers were there in the meeting. Oh, wait a minute. Not just the cheap one, but the expensive one? Yeah, they were all there. So we paid a fortune to get this terrible ad. Oh my God, please, listener, go to Oxide.Computer and learn what we're actually doing. All right, we're back. Jess, I don't know about you, but I got a ton of follow-up questions. I mean, this is the, I mean, because boy, if you gave me a time machine and allow me to set the dial anywhere, I I might set it to Bell Labs. I would definitely do that. You've got so many interesting folks, such an interesting collection of people. Right. And that was, and you're there for the summer, basically. It's a summer intern, effectively. It was mind-boggling. But yeah, Bell Labs in its heyday was incredible. They, They hired something like 30% of all PhDs in the U.S. Wow. wow. Whoa. That is a lot of PhDs. <laughs> yeah. And an awful lot of other people. Like uh, the same summer I was working there, my brother Bob, who's one year older, and his wife Linda, they had both just graduated from Cornell and started working at Bell Labs also. So I, I was in Murray Hill. They were in Homedale, but I would take the, take the Bell Labs bus over to see them for the weekend, that kind of stuff. Right. That's cool. And they were on the OYAK program where you you they, you get sent off to get your master's degree paid for by Bell Labs. And they both did that. And they were like living like kings because they both had half their salary while they were getting their master's and all this. Right, right. Not living the typical, typical grad student life at all. Right. That's great. I mean, there were so many incredible people there at that time yeah. doing so much interesting stuff. So directly across the hall from me when I was there was Greg Chesson. Right. Did you, yeah. ever, did you ever know Greg? I did not know, I did not actually know Greg. Um, so he, he was an amazing person, always the funniest guy, you know, super smart. He, I mean, he contributed an awful lot to SGI. That was his main, right. main purview. But he was doing networking back then, although it was very strange, pre-ATM kind of stuff. Right. So this is, I mean, network, I mean, what does networking even look like in the, in the 70s? Yeah. Well, his stuff was very weird. And this data kit... Yeah, I, I never quite understood it. Oh, interesting. And so and then then you head to, so you're with this amazing collection of folks. Was Joseph Osana anywhere near you by any chance? Yes. So Osana was part of the, that crowd. Can yeah. I ask you a question that never got resolved? He died in shortly thereafter. Right about the same time, yeah. Do you know how he died? I think it was a heart attack. That's okay, yeah. I've heard both a heart attack and a car crash. But he died suddenly. Yeah. And it was my understanding that he had written a bunch of, because he wrote the original Enroth, right? Or Roth, maybe. Well, T, well or was it T Roth? T Roth, I think. Okay. You know, Brian Kernahan just came out with a book that explains a lot. Okay, of I need history. to go read, you know, I've not read Brian's book, I need to go read it yeah. because maybe he, because supposedly, according to lore, Brian went into, Os- Osana's now deceased and went into Osana's code to actually. Uh, it, the, the code had been ported to the C from assembler. Yeah. So I, I have some personal okay. view there because I, I was busy porting code, cleaning up code so it would port between the PDP-11 and the Interdata, right? And it was little NDN, big NDN, 16-bit, 32-bit, a lot of differences. Right? right. And so I open up NROF. I'm like, ah, <laughs> what so the hell is this? It, it, it is amazing. And we still have the NROF source. I mean, NROF source is out there. You can go look at the NROF source. And it is really like KK or equals octal 13. If yeah. YY 
octal and, and octal. I mean, it's just like, it's all magic numbers. I mean, it's and, all. And it was clearly derived from assembler. It's clearly derived from assembler. Where, yeah. they, where they were just doing word-based stuff. They didn't care. They, they were very loose with types if they had any, right? And, wow. and everything broke moving to Big Indian from that. Oh, I can only imagine. And so I just threw up my hands and said, Someone else. <laughs> above my pay grade. <laughs> right, exactly. Well, and so the, and I have to go see if he talks about it in his book, but Brian supposedly went into that code being like, oh, come on, it can't be that. I mean, right, the, right. The, come on, it's software people. Like, how bad can it be? Like, I'm going to go modernize this. Yeah. And came out being like, I do not understand how this thing is working. Oh my God. <laughs> but it, but he, made, he made it portable at some point, so... Yeah, God it's portable. Him. Well, this is my, and the, the thing that when I first heard that story as an undergraduate, uh, I was being handed out from me for actually someone who was at Princeton. I don't know if you know Tom Deppner at Princeton, um, but he would have been at uh-huh. Princeton a couple years behind you. But my, my professor at school that had described this to me. And as I realized that this code was still very much in our source base at Sun, you, you realize that this is something that, you know, was written in the 70s that is going to survive long past all of the hardware that it was originally built for, that the software has this incredible permanence. Right. And, you know, the, the basic idea, ROF, came out of runoff from the CTSS system, which is like the original time-sharing system ever. And then Brian Kernahan was a student at Princeton for a while, and he wrote a version of it for the IBM mainframe there, which saved my ass many times because that's how I wrote all my papers when I was at Princeton. Oh, really? But it was all, you know, card, card-based, right? But, uh, so you wrote your papers in the IBM mainframe version of Roth, right. effectively. And it was beautiful because you could, you could shrink the margins all you wanted and blah, blah, blah. So you could always stretch that thing out to meet the minimum size. You know, and you think, Jess, you know, you're a LaTeX nerd. I mean, I, I mean, yeah, this is like, ooh, I think Tom just saw you and raised you to, <laughs> you got to go like raw Roth if you really want to nerd it out. <laughs> okay, I'll try that. Well, yeah. That's the original language of man pages, right? The man pages are written all in yeah. Oh, but, but oh, that's pretty readable. Yeah. Well, but main pages have macros. That's right. right. I, don't, I don't think ours had macros. Oh, that's right. There you go. Macros. Oh, the kids today and their macros. <laughs> Let me tell you, that is great. So it's, you did, now you're, I mean, at that time you are, uh, and then how, so how are you, you're typesetting them. How are you printing them? What are you printing them on your papers? You print them on these giant uh, IBM line printers, the IBM 1403, which came out with the IBM... 1401 computer right. around 1959. Right. That thing is amazing. 600 lines per minute with this crazy print change. You could swap out for different fonts. You can do different spacing. and 600 and lines per minute. So you send out this direction, say, mount mount the pure white paper, please. Right. And out spews your, your thesis or whatever. So and the IBM 1403 dates back to the 50s, obviously. Yeah. Late 50s, early 60s. Yeah. And it's going 600 lines per minute. Right. 10 creating, lines a second. Creating a terrific racket. And they have one fully restored now at the computer museum. Oh my God. That must be mesmerizing. Yeah. And uh, they, they even found one of the original IBM engineers to help help them out with this crazy print chain thing. Right. They may have needed it. I mean, yeah, yeah. this must have felt like this thing fell from space. This. Yeah. So you turned in your papers on, for, you know, your English class or whatever. Right, right. Did your professors in these other classes treat you as an alien from the future? I mean, this must have been surely you're the only one. Well, it, it had been going on for a few years, okay. right? So I got a, a few funny looks, but you know, you're supposed to type typewrite things, right? So there's not it's not always immediately obvious. Okay, what the okay, so just, right, okay, right. but uh, 
That's amazing. Sorry. So that, and you were using Roth for that, for that's, that's pretty great. Right. So at, at Amdahl, you are porting Unix, AT&T Unix, Bell Labs Unix. Right. To, to to their mainframes. Yeah. So, so I arrived at Amdahl, well, I interviewed first in January 78. And it's the day after I, the week after I interviewed with IBM where I got snowed in for an extra day. So out here, it's gorgeous, wonderful weather. So I was like, yeah, I think I'll come out here. Um, you know, some people like to overthink like the, the Silicon Valley, the allure of Silicon Valley. Right. It's the weather, stupid. It has drawn technologists here for time immemorial is like the weather is pretty good. Right. <laughs> so then Amdahl had me back for spring break to, to start consulting, start the project going. Wow. And uh, I physically brought my Unix Unix on deck tapes with me, Amdahl signed, you know, made an agreement with Princeton to get the project. And I still have those deck tapes, which were recently recovered. Oh wow! By the folks at the Living Computer Museum in, in Seattle. Oh, that is awesome. And have you been to the Living Computer Museum? Uh, no, I haven't been to the one in Seattle, but I want to. It's, yeah, we need it to, is mind cool. blowing. They have. I don't know, 20 or 30 working computers from the yeah. 70s era. That sounds dope. That is amazing. And so it's they've got it working there, or they were able to extract the stuff off. Yeah, the and they sent me a tiny little email containing everything. Whoa. <laughs> right, right. It's, a, it's an attachment now to an email, right? That That yeah. is great. And so the, you've got all your own. It must be really uh, mesmerizing to look at your own work from so long ago. Yeah. Uh, you know, you can't really remember who did what, why, or anything, but... right. But, it's, it's, but anyway, Amdahl, this was still version 6 Unix because version 7 had not made it out of Bell Labs yet. And so we got that working. We wrote editors that worked. One of my things I'm proudest of was doing a device driver for this IBM 3270 terminal. And uh, in the IBM world, everything is record-oriented, right? And the terminals must not disturb the mainframe unless absolutely necessary. <laughs> <laughs> so it was all local form entry kind of stuff. Interesting. Um, so the a, terminals have a lot of, they, they've got computational power on the terminal, if I can. Yeah, but mostly it got in the way of things. But, <laughs> right. But anyway, trying trying to get that to work with the Unix notion that everything's full duplex, and it was a challenge. Interesting. But anyway, we, we, we had a whole V6 system up with a, probably 100 internal users at Amdahl before V7 Unix ever came out. And, wow. And V7 was the portable Unix where it, where it was easier to do that. And did Amdahl view Unix as a big part of their future? I mean, they're, they're competing directly with IBM and making an IBM-compatible mainframe effectively. Yeah. So it, it started out just as a timeshare system for the electronic design automation people to do stuff. Okay, right. You know, to, to further building hardware. Then it leaked into the operating system for the console processor. So the the original Amdahl mainframe had a data general Nova as a right? console yeah. processor, 16-bit machine, and people were you know, grumbling about that. So the next generation, they were actually going to be 11 running Unix, but they were going to implement their own PDP-11 because you, know, you don't buy computers from another computer company. Right. But they stumbled across a couple of patents, the famous Unibus patent and stuff like that. So they said, oh, no, we're not going to do PDP-11. So they ended up doing a 370 subset on a tiny little console processor. And so they ran Unix on that. Huh. And so it was buried inside all the Amdahl, Amdahl mainframes. Got it. Okay. But so it was, an, it was a smaller implementation detail. Yeah. 
And then late, later on, they came out with the, the actual UTS, they called it. Uh, Unix time track system, right? Unix. I don't know what it, I don't know if it ever officially stood for anything. And then that, that was fairly popular, especially in the Bell system and universities. Right. And so you were at Amdahl until, so then what lured you away to, when did you first hear about this crazy company that was starting? So it turns out, because of my mafia of brothers, right? <laughs> True mafia. I mean, that is, a, yeah, it it's really scary. Is. <laughs> so uh, my brother Dick was working at Xerox Park at the time. Oh, wow. Oh, nice. uh, my brother Bob was working in the Xerox Star Group. And they had friends from Stanford. And the Sun stuff was, of course, happening at Stanford, all the Sun hardware development. And so the, the Valley was already kind of a buzz. It was like, oh, cool processor board out of Stanford. And what could be done with this? And, and so at Amdahl, you know, Berkeley had become the center of the West Coast Unix universe because of Bill Joy. So I had been up to Berkeley a few times and met him and chatted. But uh, one day I get a call from this guy, Scott McNeely. And he's like, hey, Tom, uh, we're doing a little startup. Have you ever heard of this thing called the Sun Board? I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, 68,000. So Scott is like, ding, 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 ding. Right. <laughs> Somebody's heard of this, right? And I was on Bill Joy's list of Unix people to, to call up. To call up. So that's why Scott got my, my name. That's great. And I was, I was looking for a startup, basically, because you know, it was still startup fever all the way back then as well. Right. Yeah. It's just what you did in Silicon Valley. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's amazing how, how uh, permanent that kind of cultural idea is, right? right. That we this right. Com- around new company formation. So, yeah, it worked out well. Yeah, I was I was clueless about so many things back then, but you know, it, it worked out. No, that's great, and just to be at really at the epicenter of it all. I mean, because you surely could not have guessed that Sun was going to be playing such a central role in the next fifteen years. Effectively, I mean, I don't know. Maybe it was clear from the beginning. Yeah. Well, it was. I guess you had Bill Joy. You knew that, like, you got actually between Bill Joy and Andy Bechtelsheim. This is like right, and and my exposure to the Xerox Alto stuff. Right. right? So. That was the coolest thing ever in terms of personal computing. And then being a, I was a dyed-in-the-wool Unix guy by this time, so bringing those two together was it seemed natural. Was perfect. So when did you see the Xerox Alto? Did you, was this through your brother that you'd yeah, seen yeah. it? Yeah, okay. I'd, I'd been up to visit him. You'd been up to visit him and you'd seen, yeah. uh, and that uh, must have felt like seeing the future. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't remember it that well, but yeah, clearly it was, it was a hot thing, hot, hot place to be. Yeah, the you know I'm 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 reading Dealers of Lightning now, which is a really interesting book about the development of Xerox Park. But the the laser printer, I, you could, you forget that the laser printer was actually oh god, they had generation after generation of these color printers where the pages would come out on fire and all this Whoa. stuff. <laughs> That's cool. That's great. So you could see, boy, if you could take the Alto, but what was the Alto running for an operating system? Uh, a bunch of homegrown stuff, right? Um, okay. And uh, Xerox Park actually did a PDP-10 clone. They did a PDP-10 clone, which I did not know right. until reading this book. It's right. a, it's uh, Max C. Max C, and they wrote, they ran some, a whole lot of their own software, but some other software, and they had file sharing and all that stuff. Yeah, so. this is something that like Chuck Thacker put together in like you know yep. whatever it was yep. like you know six months. They built their own machine from scratch. It was crazy. That's crazy. Actually, the, that that whole core group came out of a Berkeley Computer Corporation. Yeah, Berkeley Computer Corporation. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've, I, which again, I had not learned about until this book. But yeah, yeah. I, I still don't know enough about them, but it, it was quite the seminal group. 
it feels like they burned through a lot of money. They were like an early, I, I would love to read a book on the Berkeley Computer Corporation because they clearly had a lot of good ideas, interesting people, but also no real financial discipline. Right, right. Uh, but another story that's as old as Silicon Valley for sure. So you, yep. so you saw that this could be a big deal to, to combine these folks and these ideas. This, this is going to go places. Yeah. And, it, you know, I wasn't taking it too seriously because I, I felt like I was employable. So, yeah, what the heck? Try something out. I feel that that's actually an important point. I think that 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 the kind of the security of a fluid labor market allows you to take much greater risks. Totally. In your now, uh, in your career. Now it turns out I had just bought a house with my brother Bob and his wife, so we were divvying it up three ways. And this <laughs> this was a point in time when interest rates were about fifteen percent. Oh boy! Whoa. Right. So the monthly monthly mortgage was quite astounding. Okay. And so he's like, "You're doing what?" Okay, so he you're, thought you were crazy. You're going to a startup? Uh, what if, what if, what if, what if? And I'm like, don't worry. And then a year later, he's joined me, right? Because everything's going so well. So, nice. he, so he joined you pretty shortly thereafter. Yeah. It was pretty clear that it was, because I, I mean, Sun did. Well, Sun, it was just such a rocket. I mean, right. uh, so I, I joined in May of 82. The first revenue shipments were actually three megabit Ethernet cards. Huh. And he did a whole stack of these for somebody. Um, that was our first revenue in the same month, May. And then first week of June, we shipped our first workstation. Nice. Wow. That's fast. Yeah. Yikes. And it was, it was a rocket from there. And because everyone knew Bill Joy was joining, the entire Unix world was a buzz. Was a buzz. Right. And then John Gage. Right. He came on board as our sales guy. He's a terrible salesperson, but he knew every scientist, computer scientist, rock star, news person on the planet. And you know, it's just everybody knew all of a sudden. So it was great. That's great. That's cool. Wow. Yeah, that's that would be great. And actually, behind you in the garage here, we have a I don't know. You know where this piece of artwork came from? That I that was in Mountain View Five somehow made made its way to Menlo Park Seventeen, which is where I found it in a trash pile with the optical mouse. And we'll we'll put a a, a photo of this thing in the show notes. But the because that is a machine that would overlap with you, right? That is the yeah yeah. That's I don't know what it is. But I have a story about a mouse though. So yeah, that mouse is crazy. Go on. What's your story about a mouse? So uh, my summer at Bell Labs. They put us up for housing at Fairleigh Dickinson University. So I shared a, a suite with five other guys also working for Bell Labs. One of them was uh, Steve Kirsch from MIT, who uh, importantly taught me how to juggle that summer because that's a computer science thing. You got to know how to <laughs> <Totally>. juggle. <laughs> right. um, he went on to form Mouse Systems Corporation. He invented this mouse that's in the The picture. optical mouse. Yeah. He, wow. So he invented the optical mouse as well as my brother Dick also did it at Xerox. Whoa. Whoa, wow. That's cool. Completely independently. Completely independently. Right. And so, you, you know, we've been to, because obviously with an optical mouse on the wall, the optical mouse is a subject of conversation around here. Yeah, definitely come up. These predate the rollerball effectively. Or was this, was this more precise than the rollerball? Why the optical mouse? It's more reliable because okay. you always get gunk in the rollerballs. Oh, God, yeah, that's so gross. Yeah. I remember yeah. cleaning out the dust. Oh, I just remember that. Sorry, that was very vivid. <laughs> yeah, so it, it was a much better experience with it. 
was an obstacle. And more precise for EDA and so on. Yeah. For the, uh, interesting. Wow. So you independently invented it. Right. That's, that's always- and my, uh, my brother did a Xerox technical report on the optical mouse. And it was the first Xerox technical report printed with color inserts from their brand new color laser printers. Right. Wow. So that, that dates it. That dates it. That's, yeah, that dates it to, so when is that? That would be, that's like 1980. Yeah, like 80s, right? Because yeah, the, I mean, the laser printer itself, I, you know, I'm reading about the, the, the trials and tribulations just getting that thing, that thing working. That's, yeah, boy, that's, uh, that's amazing. And the optical mouse has, I mean, it's since obviously fallen away, I think, because the, these mice, and I don't know if, you, if your brother's was the same way, did they require the mouse pad to have a, pad, yeah. have a particular orientation? If you flipped it 90 degrees, it no longer worked. Yeah, well, my brother's was, was orientation independent, ah. which is cool. But it, the pad was a, a grid of dots in a hexagonal pattern. Okay. And I never quite figured out how that worked, but it, it, it worked no matter how you turned it. Ah, so that's a, I mean, it sounds like that's the better technology. Yeah, then. yeah. Because the, the the sun technology I always felt was a little bit brittle because it would you would the orientation of your mouse pad would kind of would would screw you up. So fast forward, so beyond sun, you went to Ypsilon and I arrived in '96. I feel like you left maybe in '95 or '94. Something like that. Yeah, '94. '94, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I, I I got caught up in ATM networking. Right. Which you know, <laughs> which the short the short description of ATM is it's the kind of ATM you only put money into. <laughs> ATM humor, a little ATM joke. Do you know ATM is a technology that you would not necessarily? I thought you meant like an ATM machine. No, no but that's no. the joke. Okay. Uh, no, ATM is asynchronous transfer mode. This was a a frequently hated upon protocol. I dare say. I mean, the the the, uh, the kind of the knock on this was this is the way for the telcos to actually meter the internet. That was always. Yeah, I'm it, not sure it, that's fair or not. It definitely came out of the telco world, and it was very odd because it had 48 byte packets with five byte headers, and yeah, it was guaranteed not to fit with anything else. But as for the for the synchronous phone world, envisioning a world where everything worked with no buffering at all anywhere, right? So, so it's just not the world we have today. But right. And what was cool about ATM is you could easily visualize how to build a switch. Right. right? And, and switches came from the telephone world of voice switches. Well, I mean, it's, it's appealing. You've got these all packets of the same size. Right. They are all this constant small size. You can, so yeah, I mean, lots of yeah, things yeah. are. Yeah. So, so that's what sucked me in. It's like, oh, you could build a switch with these. Right. Little did I realize that there are people starting to build Ethernet switches Ethernet at the switches, same time. Right. Right. But it just wasn't as obvious how, how you would do that. Yeah, I remember my, uh, I think when I first moved out to Silicon Valley, I subscribed to the Red Herring magazine as one did back in the day. Uh-huh. And I think my, the, one of the first Red Herrings I have is Andy Bechtelsheim with the Death to ATM cover Whoa. with him because he was at a company called Granite right. that was doing Ethernet switching, right? Right. So, and, and but Ypsilon was doing ATM switching effectively. Yeah, and so we, we set off with observation that the ATM standards, they they were building brand new random stuff that the telcos liked that had no bearing whatsoever on what you would like a TCP IP network to look like. And so I came along and said, look, get rid of all that higher level protocol stuff. We're just going to operate the ATM switches with IP routing. Oh, interesting. And hence the IP in Ypsilon. And 
And so we call it IP switching because you were able to to switch IP packets at ridiculous speeds. Right. And uh, it was it was all pretty clever. What was really fun was kicking Cisco in the shins because at the, at the time Cisco sold lots and lots of routers, but they were all based on relatively slow MIPS chips, and the forwarding was all done in software. Right. So even a Sun workstation could do a better job. A than, better than job, a right? Cisco router, right? And an ATM switch was like orders of magnitude faster. Right, because you're able to presumably do a lot of this without actually having to even... I mean, were you doing it in silicon? Or were you able to do a lot yeah, of this? Yeah, the a- right. ATM switches were all silicon, all silicon, right. silicon data path. Right. So we had to surround the ATM fabric with software that would you know, put things on the right channel, basically. Right. Um, right. So it was some software, some hardware, blah, blah, blah. But anyway, we did a lot of partnering with ATM switch companies. And, and in some ways, we invented the core of some of the software-defined networking stuff you see today. Oh, interesting. Huh. Because we were managing a switch from the outside. You know, so the control and the switching were separated. and So it was it was a fun time. Yeah, that sounds fun. And, and, and Ypsilon was ultimately bought by Nokia, if I remember correctly, no? That's right. Okay. And it wasn't that long into Ypsilon when people figured out that Ethernet switching was going to be the way to go. <laughs> right. And there were all, all kinds of startups and... We actually had a, a team of hardware people come to us and say, hey, you should hire us and we'll do a Ethernet-based thing for you. And we said, nah. And they went off to be very successful. Um, <laughs> so we, we missed the boat in a couple of ways. Right. And same thing, uh, one of our key guys left and became a founder at Juniper Networks. Oh, there you go. Yeah. And so they, they did IP, IP routing directly in hardware. Right. So it, it was all going downhill when we were talking to, to Nokia and Nokia coming from the telco world, we thought they wanted all this ATM stuff, which we we were at the point of saying, oh, this is never going to fly. Interesting. So there's this weird tap dance, and it finally came out that, no, what Nokia wanted was some IP routing expertise. <laughs> so it was like, oh, hallelujah. It was perfect. So. Well, that's always funny, right? When you're trying to like, you're trying to impress them with all of your ATM savvy. And they're like, actually, we're actually much more interested in the IP. Yes. Yeah, yeah. That's interesting. And then how long were you at Nokia? Or were you at Nokia? Yeah, uh, solid three years or okay. so. Yeah, interesting. Many trips to Helsinki, which was a fun time. Right. And this was when Nokia was king of the world, right? So right. year 2000, they were the most valuable company in Europe. Oh. Yeah. Right. Did You, you must have had a Nokia. Did you oh, have yeah, a Nokia no, I phone? Did. I did. Yeah. I had the one that everyone had that you could play Snake on. Exactly. Yeah. 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 This is going to date you in not long. It already does date you, actually. That's all, the one everyone has. I know, but I'm just saying, like, the Gen Zers coming up are going to view you as like a, wow, you are really old. Well, you know, you can buy brand new phones of, that are clones of those, that, and Snake is still one of the key features. Oh, oh that. Whoa, that. nice. I don't even remember the model number. Like, I feel like shame right now. Like, I can't. <laughs> yeah, well. It's very popular. There were a lot of models. Yeah. Yeah. I just remember my, my, the Nokia, I think, was the first phone I had that had a built-in camera. That was, was great. But, of course, I was much older. Interesting. And then after Nokia, was the drive scale after Nokia or what did you end up? So after Nokia, kind of had my first retirement where I fiddled around and consulted with some VCs and had a nice office in downtown Palo Alto. There you go. Nice. And the, the major thing I accomplished then was getting into Linux because I had been FreeBSD guy at, yep. at Ypsilon. Um, so that was like 2001. Then eventually I got itchy. So I started another startup. It was called Nettilion. And I pulled... Uh, some people are out, out of Sun, et cetera. So Satya Nishtala, who's my co-founder now at DriveScale, right. that, that's when I pulled him out of Sun. Got it. And we were going to do a distributed shared memory product 
for basically connecting CPUs to be SMPs over Ethernet. Okay. And it was way too early for that. Yeah, that's that. It was early. Yeah. And we discovered two other companies were already doing it. Right. <laughs> right. Which one, one of whom survives today, amazingly, Scale MP. Huh. And doing, doing just that. Wow. So we, did, we piddled around for a year, and the VCs didn't, didn't really see any, anything interesting. So they said, yeah, I think you're done. Right. So I went around trying to sell the, the group of engineers to whoever was interested and talked to Cisco. At that time, the, the core team from Cisco, you know, which is MPLS, Mario, Prem, Luca, Sony. Right. They were leaving Cisco to start a new startup slash spin-in. And they, they had done this spin-in previously for yeah. fiber, fiber channel stuff. But th- this is Nuova, right? This has got to be Nuova. Nuova, yeah. yeah. That's what they were forming. Right, so they, right, right, right. They saw I was loose. They called me up and, you know, it was, it was good because I brought a whole engineering team with me yeah. as a co-founder at Nuova. All right, we will be uh, taking another break. We'll be right back with the Tom Line and more On The Metal. On The Metal is brought to you by the Oxide Computer Company, where we're going to try a new feature shamelessly ripped off of Reply All's Yes, Yes, No, where our boss, Steve Tuck, brings us a tweet we, he does not understand, and Jess and I try to explain it to him. Steve, do you have a tweet? I sure do. Go the for it. The tweet in question... UEFI preboot network stack engaged the onboard NIC in such a way that it would write back DMA to particular physical memory pages sometime after control was passed to the bootloader. Corruption would occur somewhere in the user parts of the RAM disk. No idea. No idea. Jess, do you understand this tweet? So I understand definitely the part about the UEFI preboot networking stack, but the part about DMA is in question marks. So it's like, I guess you're not really sure where that's you're going. You're overthinking it. I understand this tweet. Running on-prem is painful. This is dealing with an awful, <laughs> awful firmware bug. The firmware has overwritten part of the operating system in a way that is extremely painful to debug. So who do you go to in that case? Who do you go to? You definitely strangle one of your vendors. You strangle one of your vendors. And unfortunately, your vendor is a PC vendor because all of the existing <laughs> computer companies are selling personal computers. What we need is a new computer company. So this is just saying I'm an intense pain trying to run systems on-premises. That's exactly what it's saying. Steve, what can someone do if they're intense pain running on-premises? Well, if someone is running in intense pain on-premises, what they should do is go over to oxide.computer to learn a little bit more about how we are going to take that pain away. Help is on the way. Join us at oxide.computer. You are not alone. All right, we're back with Tom. So Tom, as you know, Jess and I, along with Steve Talk, have started a computer company, Oxide Computer Company. And as a result, we have gone back through history about, you know, when are the, the, the kind of the recent attempts at doing this? And Nuova is obviously one of the big ones, one of the, most, the important ones. It's a computer company that right. started in the early 2000s, effectively. Yeah, uh, 2005, right. I guess. And by the the MPLS crews, MPLS is a protocol, but it's also the names of the of what the yeah the the, the initials of Mario, Pram, Luca, and Sony, who's this, this gang that have been together ever since that Crescendo Communications that did the right. physical layer right stuff, and then Mario ran all of engineering at at Cisco. Uh, Lucas Luca was his right hand man, and Prem is been everywhere. He's right. really good. So 
So it, it was a, a gang to contend with. Right. Um, so it was a no-brainer for me to join them. Yeah. And then that became Nuovo Systems. And Nuovo is really going to take a from-scratch approach or, or try to take a clean sheet of paper on, yeah, on but, the computer. Basically, they were saying, look, there's this wall between servers and networking that doesn't really have to be there. And so how can we rethink who does what in, in some more efficient way? And so we did a lot of interesting stuff. But business-wise, it, it became structured as a spin-in because Mario had the power to hire absolutely anyone he wanted from Cisco. So to stop that happening, Cisco had to come up with a framework where... <laughs> that is great. That's like, it's a, like a preventative acquisition. Like the only crazy. way to like actually prevent you from from just hiring away our best and brightest is to actually acquire you. Right, right. That and is so, funny. Uh, so he did the second best thing, which was to hire away all the people who had already left Cisco that he knew, knew right. were good. Right, And in particular, we got J.R. Rivers and Dan Lenoski. I think they both came out of Google. And they're both amazing people. They did so. So the first product we did was 10 gig Ethernet switch in a way that was really the first economical 10 gig Ethernet switch. Oh, interesting! I didn't realize that you guys did your own switch. Okay. And Cisco knew how to sell switches, so right. that, that was a no-brainer. Um, it pissed off a lot of people in Cisco who were also building 10 gig switches. And so was the structure that this this had been. It was a spin-in, right? So it was acquired right. very shortly after. Yeah, but basically after we hit the development milestones. Then, they, we, then we were acquired. Okay, got it. But you're an independent group, effectively, within right, Cisco. Right. right. But then, doing the switch, that we viewed that as like the easy part, and we wanted to do something more significant with servers and yeah. whatever. That was a much more difficult discussion with Cisco, because they didn't know how to sell servers. <laughs> right, right. You said switches? I don't know, I said servers. Like, I, I heard switches. <laughs> right. So that, that took quite a while to iron, right. iron that out. Yeah, but then we did the UCS system, which right. which had a number of really interesting things about it, including one of the first smart NICs, where you know the what happened on the PCI bus was really controlled by the network, network not by the server. Interesting. And so, was that the VIC? Was it the, the VIC the, that the VIC yeah. is is that that affected that early? Smart yeah, we NIC? we never called that that internally, but yeah, that's yeah, that's sorry, the external name. Yeah, exactly. That's what that, that's how I know. What'd you call it internally? Was Apollo. Paolo. After Palo Alto. After Palo Alto. Nice. All right. Now I'm, I can be like, Jesse and I can be cool with the Vic crowd. We can yeah. call the Palo. We also had a we also had a Menlo chip, but that was not cool. That was just a fiber channel translator. Thing. Okay. All right. So Palo was much cooler than Menlo. That's good. We'll, we'll, uh, good enough. I'll avoid. Yeah. And so, but you guys were also taking, uh, doing some interesting things on firmware, right? Because I know that there was some interesting BMC work going on. I mean, it's, I've... Yeah, we uh, we had a very tight relationship with Intel because they were happy to see another contender in the server world. Right. So we did a lot of firmware work with them, trying to, again, all pointed at making things more manageable, which, of course, remains a huge problem with the BMCs today. A huge problem, right. Cisco UCS had the server profile thing where you could really control the whole identity of the server MAC addresses and UUIDs and all that kind of stuff. From, right. So you could move that identity around between different physical pieces of hardware. Yeah, well, what were some of the big lessons of that in terms of like what worked? Because I get, I feel like this is like one of really the the last attempts at taking things from scratch that are not in the hyperscalers. It was it was in this and that became UCS. Right. Um, what were some of the things that really worked from that? Well, a lot of it never quite mattered <laughs> right. because yeah. it, everything ended up in virtual machines. Right. Um, it became a very, very VMware-centric product. 
and then VMware was taking over a lot of the management stuff. So so then it became this uneasy tension between Cisco and VMware about who who's doing what and why. And I was fortunately not deeply involved in all that. Right. But I didn't. You know, I, I as, as soon as Cisco took us over, I I kind of checked out in many ways because right. the Cisco culture is so alien to me. And so I think that like if open firmware had been around. I mean, a lot of the challenges from Nova, it sounds like we're dealing with some of the, all the proprietary firmware that you had to go partner with effectively. And well, there's that. And there, we did, we did a unnecessarily complex system in my view. Where, oh, interesting. Where we had, you know, the, not only the firmware on the server boards, but we had a, a local switch in, in the server box. Only it wasn't a switch. It was a fabric extender, which is right. a new concept. Right. Um, and then the switch was top of rack, and we're doing software up and down the stack. We're doing chips for all these things. Right. Okay. Wow. There was a lot of stuff going on, and yeah. that was all internal to Cisco. So the budget is yeah. actually much larger yeah. at this point. And even at Nuova, it was I don't know. We were doing like six chips at once. Wow. Wow. It was pretty silly, but we had the people who could crank these things out. That's amazing. So you left Nuova at some point. Yeah, I've, I, I invested in peace. Invested in Cisco. peace, as they say, right? And then it was it was drive scale time. It was drive scale was then? Well, the actually the the thing I did at Cisco, which was kind of a research project for me, was I got interested in low latency networking, you know, and, and why why does InfiniBand claim to be so much faster than Ethernet? Yeah, blah, blah, blah. and basically did user level framework for Ethernet drivers, which turned into the VFIO subsystem in in the Linux kernel. Yeah, right. And so I'm kind of proud of that, of creating a framework where you can actually do user-level drivers yes. safely. And you can actually rival IB right. performance. It turns out all the performance of IB comes from OS bypass. Right. It has nothing to do with the protocol. Right. In fact, it's despite the protocol. Right. Yeah. So protocols are protocols. Yeah. Right. So that was cool. Yeah. Neat. That was kind of my, my side project. Right. There you go. The the three of us last saw one another at the open source firmware conference, which I, was awesome. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I love that. Conference. That was a great conference, wasn't it? Great. Yeah, it's really that's good. the kind that should be a, a small enough community. That, yeah, that they're all fun and interesting. What and I know I've said this before, but it, I was telling Jess, I'm like, this is what conferences used to be like. I felt. Did you feel like that? That was like yeah, a, yeah, like the early Unix days, yeah, and right? stuff like that. Yeah, or like everything became a trade show. It just felt like this group of. It's like working on kind of esoteric technology, really. Right. I mean, most people still it's like open source firmware. It's like who cares? Right. Right. But those of us in the know, it's like this is really important. This is really <laughs> important. Yeah. So why is it important from your perspective? And we certainly have our. Perspective. Uh, Really, nothing to do with my business. Yeah, right. Thing. It's just, it's just you know, there's been so many attacks at so many levels on on these yeah. compute elements that you know, it's time to protect ourselves. Totally. Yeah, it is, and time to get. I feel like really much more modern software, much deeper in the stack. I mean, it's terrifying yeah. how yeah. much we've of this. Well, the other thing I wish, other thing besides NFS, I wish would go away is is C. Yeah, right? it's just time to stop. Yeah, you know, we've had enough. Yes. So yeah. what? So what is post C? And we obviously have our opinion on yeah, this. That's Rust. All yeah. right, there we go. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> if, if you're doing that level of system spread, yeah, right, yeah, right. yeah. And then uh, Go has its place. Go has its place. Yeah, yeah. Python, I, I kind of Python is awesome. But. Yeah. It also has. Yeah, I feel like all this stuff has its place, but it does feel like Rust is is replacing C. Yeah. Uh, and it feels like this is a a not uncommonly held view from people who 
came up when C itself was revolutionary. I think it's, it's, it's interesting to me how many folks who remember when C replaced assembly right. are now seeing a lot of the same things, same reasons that C replaced assembly, they are now seeing in Rust replacing C. I mean, is that a fair, yeah. fair characterization? Yeah. And uh, it just saddens me to see major new things still being written in C++ or, oh, God. Oh, God, or yeah. C. Or like, it's like, ugh. why? Gag me. Yeah. Well, especially when, I mean, it, it just does feel like, and I mean, because Tom, you like us, I mean, we are not really, I'm not a PL person at all, right? I, I just view a programming, not, I just view a programming language as it's an important way of expressing a system. But to, it, it's kind of, I, I've always viewed it as as a necessary evil, I guess. With Rust, it's been very uh, exciting to feel like, wow, this is an actual, like, technological step forward in the programming language that is helping me as someone who's actually deploying a real system. Yeah, I, I actually have not started programming in Rust, but... Oh, there you go. All but right. uh, I, I really want to. I want to find some excuse to You, you got to find some excuse. Yeah. So here's what I think you will find, or what I found, is you remember when you're programming C, you could feel the underlying assembly? Yeah. With Rust, I think you can feel the underlying C. So I think as a veteran C programmer, Rust will have less of a learning curve for you because I think that some of the things that it wants to do, I don't know if you're a Java programmer, Python programmer or something, it's going to be very confusing about why the Rust compiler is being upset about various things. But the, the actual, the ownership model makes so much intuitive sense if you're coming from C, I think. Yeah. Um, well, that is, um, I feel that's a great tour from, uh, from Roth on the mainframe to, <laughs> uh, to, and, and to 600, uh, 600 lines per minute of, of printing to Rust. Tom, we cannot thank you enough. This has been, yeah, thank you. this has been just. You're throwing me out already. I, oh, we, we can go. I, I, I feel like, you know, I, I, I feel that we, these could go on for, uh, for days because I think there, there's so much interesting stuff out there. Yeah, we haven't really talked about drive scale, but you know the short. Oh yeah, so sorry, I'm, I'm so sorry. Let's, let's talk about drive scale. Yeah. Well, the short thing there is we're trying to make servers simpler. You know, get get stuff out of servers, put them on the network, put it on the network, put it on the network, tie it tie it all together on demand. It's right. Very, it's very simple. And so yeah, if people want to learn more about drive scale. What's the what's the place to? I mean, you've been at the epicenter of so many technological revolutions. I'm sure people are going to be interested to, to learn a lot more about drive scale. Where should they go to do that? Uh, the usual website. Okay. So. I don't know where else to start, but there's been a fair amount of stuff written up about us. And you've got your own podcast. I do, and kind of in hiatus, but there's a bunch of episodes out there. But but they can people can go catch up on yeah, if they yeah. want more Tom Lyon. That's if a good you want place to hear to the go. same stories again. It's probably out there. Uh, um, <laughs> I want to know when we're doing the Lyon family reunion. Yeah, yeah. I, that, that's the. I, I mean, is that for Thanksgiving? Or? Yeah, I mean, it's like, <laughs> do you? And I, so so uh, we're all getting together in El Paso for Christmas. Oh, nice. Wow! So all nine siblings, spouses, kids, grandkids. It's wow. going to be about 30 people. I feel like the Computer History Museum needs to send a film crew there. I, I mean, yes. Yeah. Don't you think? Yeah. I mean, I just like, it's just so incredible to have a, such a, a you know, a family that has, has done so much. And hopefully, you, hopefully everyone gets along well enough. Yep, to, yep. That was all good, good, that, ner good nerdy fun. That is, that is great. Well, Tom, thank you again, and thank you so much for joining us in the garage today. Yes, thank you. It's been it's been terrific, and I know that I'll look forward to uh, to more stories from you for sure. 
Okay. Thank you for having me. Uh, excellent. Thank you. Uh, and thanks for joining us for On the Metal, Tales from the Hardware Software Interface. You've been listening to On the Metal, Tales from the Hardware Software Interface. For show notes, to learn more about our guests, or to sign up for our mailing list, visit us at onthemetal.fm. On the Metal is a production of Oxide Computer Company and is recorded in the Oxide Garage in Oakland, California. To learn more about Oxide, visit us at oxide.computer. On the Metal is hosted by me, Brian Cantrell, along with Jess Frizzell, and we are frequently joined by our boss, Steve Tuck. Our original and awesome theme music is by J.J. Wiesler at Pollen Music Group. You can learn more about J.J. and Pollen at pollenmusicgroup.com. We are edited and produced by Chris Hill and his crew at HumblePod. From Jess, from Steve, from me, and from all of us at Oxide Computer Company, thanks for listening to On the Metal.